0: Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke and we have been now for about three months or so. And this week we come to Jesus preaching in His hometown of Nazareth for the first time. We're in chapter 4 and we're going to pick it up with verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, He went away. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word about your Son. It is both full of grace, but also judgment as well. And so we pray that we would heed this word, that it would penetrate deep into our minds and our hearts and even to our feet that we might follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name because he is our advocate and our Lord through his spirit. Amen. Well, in verse 14 we read that that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about Him, that is, uh, people were talking about what they were witnessing with Him had spread throughout the area, the region. Now remember, after His baptism by John in the Jordan River where the Holy Spirit descended upon Him and God the Father pronounced that He was His beloved Son. And all of that stuff is public, people saw it. Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the same Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. That was last week. And as we saw last week, this testing was the same sort of testing that Adam faced in the garden, and in turn, what Israel faced in the wilderness after her baptism in the Red Sea, as Paul describes that exodus out of Egypt. So whereas both Adam and Israel failed to trust the word of the Lord and in turn uh, failed to believe that God was good and had their best interests at heart, Jesus kept faith and he did not give in to the word of the serpent. So in the power of the same spirit, Jesus returned to Galilee, the area where he was raised and began his ministry and he was teaching and preaching in local synagogues. Now, that said, our passage functions, among other things, there's a lot to it, but it functions among other things as an example of what his typical practice looked like at this time, especially in terms of his custom of faithfully showing up for worship at synagogue on the Sabbath. However, once he became a known teacher, like we see in our passage, he was often invited to preach to the synagogue. This is why... For example, we often see conflicts uh, with the Pharisees happening on the Sabbath over Sabbath-keeping issues. Jesus' authority as a teacher was being recognized, but he was being questioned, if not outright rejected, by the spiritual elite or who deemed themselves to be the spiritual elite. Now, it's clear from verse 15 that the report about Jesus prior to him showing up to Nazareth was good and that people were rightly glorifying him for what he was saying and doing. And we get the impression from verse 23 that the news about him also included miracles. So Jesus came to Nazareth to what I think we can rightly assume was the synagogue he grew up in. And again, like in other places, he was invited to preach. Now, as an aside, if you want to know where uh, the Christian practice of reading scripture, then preaching or Expounding, it, uh, expounding on it comes from, here you go, it's, it's the, the Jewish synagogue practice that we see right here. Uh, Christian worship right from the beginning uh, is an extension of Jewish worship practices going back at least uh, to this time. And you certainly see that happening in the book of Acts as well. Okay, well we read in verses 17 through 20 that Jesus was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that he unrolled the scroll, read from Isaiah 61, then rolled the scroll back up, sat down and started to preach. So instead of having a Bible and the way we think of it in terms of a book form, that doesn't really happen until in any mass sort of ways until the printing press it was all on scrolls. And so the typical practice that we see here was for an elder or a teacher or a leader of a synagogue to stand for the reading of scripture, taking from the scroll and reading, and then to sit down to expound it. So if you think about our setup right now, it's almost exactly backwards from what was, was happening in synagogue practice. So I should be sitting and you should be standing if we're gonna be proper synagogue type people. So for example, when you read about events like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was almost certainly sitting while his disciples stood around him and listened. Now, Luke emphasizes the word scroll here a lot, and it, it ties into, I think, the first temptation of the previous section, and actually to the prophet Ezekiel as well. So if you will remember from last week, Jesus' answer to the first temptation, the temptation to turn stone into bread and remember he was 40 days fasted was his answer was to quote Deuteronomy 8 3 man does not live by bread alone and as we noted last week in Matthew's account of the same temptation Jesus finished out the phrase "But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord but Luke doesn't do that so the question is Why? Are they divergent accounts? Do they disagree? And the answer is no, I don't think so. I I think Luke, knowing Matthew's gospel, actually does complete the phrase, but he does it by showing Jesus as the Word of God. And the prophet Ezekiel helps to make sense, I think, of what's happening here. So in Ezekiel uh, 2 and 3, the prophet is commanded by God to take a scroll, the Word of God, and to literally... Eat it. Here's what Ezekiel 3.1 and following says. And he said to me, this is God speaking to, to Ezekiel, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So, Ezekiel was commanded, and this is not unusual. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, God commands them to do crazy, weird things at times as living symbols, right? So, Ezekiel was commanded to literally... Eat the word of God written on a scroll, and it was to him sweet like honey in his mouth. Now, as an aside, Psalm 19 says that the word of the Lord is more to be desired than gold or the finest honey. And Psalm 119 says that the word of the Lord is sweeter even than honey. Rightly so. Man does not live by bread alone. Of course, on the flip side, as Proverbs 5 points out, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So, so many things appear sweet, or have an initially sweet taste, especially the wisdom of the world, or say, illicit sexual desires. But the Word of God is far sweeter far more precious to those who know to eat it. Humans rightly were created to live on this word. So Ezekiel eats the scroll and is commanded to go to the people of Israel who were in exile and speak God's word to them. So see the pattern, Ezekiel lives not on bread alone but on the word of God and in turn, having eaten this word, the word flows out from him. Notice that God tells Ezekiel that he's not sending him to a foreign people with a difficult language, like how Jonah was sent to the Assyrians. If God sent Ezekiel to a foreign people, they would actually listen to him. No, he's sending Ezekiel to Israel. And you would think Israel, because they are God's people, would listen to this word. But they will not. They have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. And God doesn't mean that they are stupid. No, like Pharaoh in Egypt, they've hardened their hearts against God and they will not listen to Him. Well, Jesus in chapter 4 fits with this same prophetic ministry of Ezekiel. Jesus is the one who lives on the very Word of God and in turn speaks the gracious Word to God's people because He is the Word of God and, of course, The synagogue marveled at what He said. But like the exiled Israel of Ezekiel's day, well, they they did not listen. They had hard foreheads and stubborn hearts. So this this moment in Nazareth really, again, it sets the pattern for what we will see in Jesus' ministry. Like Isaiah and Ezekiel, He will preach to an Israel that refused to heed the prophet that God had sent to her, even God's own Son, an Israel that has ears and eyes but refused to hear and to see. And in turn, His gospel, His announcement that the Kingdom of God had shown up in Him will go instead to the Gentiles, like what happened with the Assyrians and again with the Babylonians hundreds of years earlier. So, after reading Isaiah 61 and the promised Jubilee, which the Jewish people at this time, they did have some expectation that it would be showing up soon. Jesus sat down and said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's one of the shortest sermons you will ever hear and it's awesome, it's awesome. And what will follow in Luke's gospel is the truth of that sermon, the truth of that statement. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus. He was anointed by the Spirit. That is, He was the Christ. The Christ is the anointed one. And He proclaimed good news to the poor, just like He had done right there in Nazareth. He proclaimed liberty to the captives. And for good reason, He went looking. Think about that. God went looking for those struggling under the burden of sin or disease or alienation. He recovered the sight to the blind, both to those who were literally blind, but more importantly, to the spiritually blind. He set at liberty those who were oppressed, most notably those who were tormented by demons. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, that is, the year of jubilee, the year when the debt record was set to zero. Ancestral lands were returned to their ancestral families, and slaves were set free. So the year of jubilee, of course, anticipated Jesus, right? The new creation and redemption of the world. So Jesus was saying that God's favor, God's promised Jubilee, the very thing they were looking for, His kingdom and new creation had shown up in Him. But even though people marveled at what Jesus was saying, like, this is incredible. Do you hear what's coming out of His mouth? In fact, the text highlights that, the words of His mouth. Just like with Ezekiel, they weren't having it. They weren't accepting his word. To put it another way, they were all for the Jubilee, but they rejected that it had shown up in Jesus. And so they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, on the one hand, they they knew who Jesus' adopted father was, and Joseph was nobody special, despite his Davidic lineage. And even though, of course, Jesus was of David's lineage, he wasn't the only one, just go to Bethlehem, right? He wasn't born in the palace, and what's more, Jesus didn't go to a rabbinical school. He had grown up around them. He didn't look like a king or a revolutionary like, say, Barabbas. He looked like good old Jesus. But on the other hand, with with James Jordan, I think the people's question, is not this Joseph's son, whether they intended it or not, echoes back to the Joseph of Genesis. So if you remember in that story, Joseph was the much younger son of Jacob and was beloved by him. He was set apart with a beautiful robe, a sure sign of his beloved status, which in turn caused his brothers to hate him. Further, he gave bad, that is, honest reports about his brothers. And if you, if you know the stories of Genesis 38 and 39, then you know those reports were warranted. So Joseph was a truth teller to both his father and to his people, his brothers. Even further, Joseph received two separate but related dreams from God, which looked forward to when Joseph would be ruling at the right hand of Pharaoh and his family would be in submission to him. And he told his brothers about his dreams and in response they said, are you, you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? It's almost exactly what the Hebrew slaves sneered at Moses in Egypt. So just as Israel often rejected Moses as their savior, so too Joseph's brothers. So too Jesus' hometown, and by extension here, Israel rejected Jesus. Now Genesis makes clear that despite his favored status, or perhaps because of it, And because of the prophecy that he would rule over them, they hated Joseph and were jealous of him. And in turn, they plotted to kill Joseph. They threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery, faked his death, which led Joseph into Egypt, into prison, and eventually to a complete reversal from prison to the ascension to the right hand of the most powerful man on the planet. So you need to think about this, not merely in terms of historical events, but theologically because that's how the Bible means for you to read it. Joseph, set apart by his father as his beloved son, who was set apart by God to bring deliverance and life to his family and the world, was rejected by his brothers, underwent a couple of symbolic death and resurrection type events, was raised from symbolic death and ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh, who was, by his own people, considered the image of God. So, in our passage, this son of Joseph, Jesus, was also rejected by his brothers, in this case the whole synagogue, who in turn, which that would have included his family, by the way, who in turn, in their wrath, attempted to drive him to the brow of a hill in order to push him off and kill him, much like Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit or how Potiphar threw him into prison. And yet Jesus passed through their midst untouched, untouched, ironically giving them a sign and a miracle that they were desperate for and had demanded of him. As an aside, when people demand signs or miracles or or proofs according to whatever standard they think is ultimate, that is, you know, prove to me your God is real, or prove to me that this isn't just some story, or a myth, or whatever. Even when such signs are given, or the burden of proof is met, it is rarely enough. It's far more typical, like what we see in our passage, but also in our own times with the attacks against the validity and truth of Christianity, that not only will people remain unconvinced, no matter how good the evidence is, they will move the goalposts and demand we kick again. And of course, Jesus knows this and He refuses to give in to it. So right from the start of His ministry in His hometown, no less, Jesus' identity, like what the devil did to Him in the wilderness, is called into question and He's tempted again, like what the devil did, to give His people a sign or a miracle, like what He had been doing previous to this in Capernaum. Now in response, He says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Or as people would say to Him while He was dying on the cross, Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, O Son of Joseph, if the Jubilee is really here, prove it. Prove it. In response, Jesus says, no prophet is welcome in his hometown or acceptable in his hometown, something most pastors can resonate with, but something that was especially true of the prophets when Israel and Judah were in open rebellion against God. Joseph certainly understood not being accepted among his brothers. So instead of giving in to their demands, he recounts two events with Elijah and Elisha. During Elijah's ministry, God sent judgment against Israel by removing rain for three and a half years. Think about that. Three and a half years no rain which caused a massive famine. As an aside, famines in the Bible are always a judgment on the people of God for their unfaithfulness. In Deuteronomy 28, God is he's forthright about this. He says if you will keep faith, I will provide everything you will ever need. This land is going to be flowing with milk and honey which is just You know, a metaphor for saying it's going to be super abundant. If you rebel, I will remove my hand. So famines were God's refusal to give us our daily bread. There were lots of widows in Israel during that time of judgment, but God didn't send Elijah to an Israelite widow. He sent him to the widow of Zarephath, and Elijah in turn raised her son from the dead. Likewise, during Elisha's ministry, and Israel was just as unfaithful during Elisha's time as Elijah's, there were lots of lepers in Israel. You know, lots of people suffering from defilement, both physically and spiritually, and none of them were cleansed but Naaman, the Syrian general. Now, as an aside, we see Jesus' words being played out in Luke 7, with a Roman centurion son being healed by Jesus and the widow of Nain's son being raised from the dead by him. In the case of the centurion, who was akin to Naaman, Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. And Naaman had come to faith too, by the way. And Jesus said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Which, by the way, was a complete smack. So in short, instead of giving the hometown crowds a sign, He's proclaiming God's judgment on them, that they are faithless like the generations before them. If they will not listen to God's beloved Son, whose very words are the words of God, then God's mercy would go to the Gentiles, like the Roman centurion. And of course, they don't see themselves this way. We rarely do. Remember our confession of sin We might feel conviction for sin, but we're just as easily self-righteous in condemning someone else's, right? They thought they were good Israelites. I mean, after all, where is this happening? It's in a synagogue on the Sabbath. So you could see why the synagogue would be then filled with wrath. It's the same reason Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. And why Jonah was angry at God for showing mercy to Nineveh. So like with the northern kingdom of Jonah's day, when God's people refused to turn to their Lord and God patiently pursued Israel for 200 years. Think about how long that is. 200 years pursuing Israel before sending the Assyrian empire to judge them. When they refuse to listen to the prophets, God will judge His people. As we've studied in the evening series with, with Deuteronomy 8 and 32, God will, in turn, make a people who are not my people into my people with the purpose of enraging God's people and making them jealous of Him, like with Joseph's brothers or Jonah's anger over Nineveh or how Paul, how Paul responded to the movement of the Spirit at Pentecost and, in turn, murdered Stephen after he preached God's judgment on Israel. Paul himself, though, once converted, would follow the same pattern of to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So with Joseph, if God's people, think his brothers, would not receive the one God had set apart for them, that God would send His chosen one to the Gentiles, to Egypt, and in turn, save the world, and the Jews would eventually come along. Egypt was saved first. As an aside, it is apparent This is just for, this is, you know, free sermon here. As an aside, it is apparent that much of of Egypt, including Pharaoh and some of the priesthood at least, turned to the true God and converted. And when you compare that against the beginning of Exodus, that's astounding. It is apparent that Pharaoh converted and much of the priesthood probably. After all, Pharaoh received Jacob's blessing alongside Jacob's sons. That means in some sense, Pharaoh kneeled before Jacob and recognized that God's blessing came through him. Jesus is indicating the same thing here, right? If His own people will not listen, then the gospel will go to the Gentiles, like Naaman or the widow of Zarephath or the Roman centurion here in a couple of chapters, which would be judgment, just like Stephen preached. And in turn, it would enrage them and cause them to grow jealous. This is precisely Paul's hope for Israel in Romans 9-11, through 11, that the gospel going to the Gentile would cause the, cheap, the, the Jewish people to turn back to God. Now there's obviously a lot that be, could be commented about this passage, a lot of nuance, a lot of just, it's, it's an incredible passage. But let me highlight just one thing for us to consider as we close. In a certain sense, it's to be expected that when the world hears the Word of God, both that He offers mercy and grace, and that if they will not turn to Him to find life, if they, if they will not repent and walk in His ways, that He will rightly punish them for their rebellion against Him. You, essentially, you know, they reject God's ownership and rule over them. That when they hear that Word, the world's response is either one of repentance, like what we... We see uh, in Nineveh with Jonah or Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel or Naaman from Syria with Elisha. It's a rejection of the word or, or it's a rejection of that word and a doubling down or hardening of their heart like what is seen in Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot preached to them or Pharaoh in Egypt with Moses preaching or with really many Americans today. So it tends to be one or the other, either they are cut to the heart and they turn. Or they do not. Their hearts are hard and they say, absolutely not, I want no part of this. Or perhaps they ignore it or something like that. But what happens when it's the people set apart by God who claim to know Him, who claim to bear His name, who receive this word? You know, Israel's history beginning really with Moses, but I, I think you probably go back to Joseph, is to reject the prophets God, God sent to her and in turn. To seek after another word that confirmed her in her sin. Even as they continued to call themselves by God's name. That's the irony. We want to be called Christians, but we want to do what we want to do. So when you read about, say, Samuel, or Nathan, or Elijah, or Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and on and on it goes. Those prophets were actually in the minority. There were lots of other prophets in Israel. In fact, there was a school of the prophets in Elijah's day. When Elijah said, I think I'm the last one around, God said, no, there's 7,000 more. And the reason such men were in the minority was that they actually were set apart to preach God's word to his people. And the people, including kings, and sometimes other prophets, did not accept it. And like with David, such a word would certainly be gracious, confirming God's love for His people and His continuing promise to redeem the world through His Christ. God never gives up that statement ever, ever. He says, I will keep this. The gospel always includes, really it starts with, you are my beloved sons and daughters and I will never leave you or forsake you. So before God has ever gives the law, He gives His love. And this was true in Genesis 2 and it was true in Exodus 19 and it's true right now. But also like David, he will not hesitate to call out sin and discipline his people. And this is exactly the point of Hebrews 12. If God loves you, if he calls you his child like any good parent, he will not leave us in our own devices. He will not let us play in traffic. So the question becomes Are we merely content to call ourselves Christians in a way similar to how the people of Nazareth were content to call themselves the people of Abraham? You know, doing the occasional church thing as it suits us, though I'm fairly certain people took the synagogue way more seriously in Nazareth than we often do with church? Or perhaps raising our kids with broadly Christian ethics, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't cuss too much, at least not around certain people, don't be a jerk be a good citizen, pay your taxes mostly, be nice? Or are we willing to be defined by God through His Son, which changes all of that? Through His Son, the Word of God, being filled and led by His Spirit, both with His words of kindness, God really is for me. God really is good. He really has me in life and in death no matter what my circumstances or my feelings or my emotions may indicate right now, but also with His words of instruction and discipline and maybe even judgment. My life really is not in step with the Spirit. I really am choosing a soft rebellion or or sometimes maybe it's more so a a hard rebellion. I really am wanting to be the shepherd of my own life. I I really don't love God's people I really do want to walk in my own ways because it's fun. Our God is for us. That's the whole thing. Our God is for us. Jesus was for those people in that moment. And His ways really are the best ways. So let's, let's take an, a note from Nazareth. Let's listen to Him. Let's not call Him into question demanding signs or proof. If He really loves me, Because we know he does. We know he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. We have ample witness through the prophets to be sure. But in your son, we certainly have it. You are for us. May we never forget this. And may we in turn repent as you... Call us to do daily, to walk in your ways, and to seek out your love that you have so freely given. We pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.